A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. While you're talking, I'm images of Leave It to Beaver and, you know, Andy Griffith show, Dick Van Dyke show, all of those sort of golden age television um, images of that sort of atomic age nuclear family, um, good old fashioned Americana. That's that's those are the images that are that are coming to me. And so what you're telling me is that Mormon culture devoured that and assimilated to that into that as well as we already had an institution that helped to facilitate that transition and so the relief society itself becomes kind of reinvented I, I don't want to say completely reinvented but it becomes reinvented as an organization of domesticity whereas in the 19th century it was much more than just domesticity so in the 1950s and 60s, you're going to have Relief Society lessons that are very much addressed to homemaking, home care, how to do, you know, how to fold napkins, whatever, casseroles, those kinds of things. In the 19th century, Relief Society was suffrage activism, volunteer hospitals, growing and selling and storing our own wheat. Um, it was just a lot more, much more expansive in its in its uh, setup than in the post-World War II era. Gotcha. So, so after, after World War II, you know, there were, it seems that there were, there was already um, in existence in American culture, this bifurcation of gender roles, but perhaps not as black and white as it became after World War II and Mormon culture embraced that. Do you have any theories or, um, you know, any research as to as to why exactly that happened? Why um, Mormon culture assimilated to that so so willingly and fervently in the post World War II era? Um, I think because I, I don't have any specific research. I can only just say what comes off the top of my head right now is that I think because we have always been a family oriented religion, and that family is the essential unit um, both here and in the eternities that that reification of domesticity and of women's traditional roles seemed like just a natural transition to make for Mormon women. It was natural to say my children are my primary emphasis, my husband is my primary emphasis but you have these outward cultural messages that are also pushing us toward that. I mean, that was, I mean, it was the Cold War as well. Look at that. I mean, you have this sense of to be good Americans in contrast to those godless communists in, in the Soviet Union that you had to celebrate this ideal um, traditional nuclear family was seen as, as a higher ideal than 
than what we were fighting against, than the kind of communism where everybody goes to a factory, both men and women, and children are sent off to ice skating camps or or whatever. Right. <laughs> and so I think I think it was very much a kind of embracing the Cold War ideals, embracing your patriotic duty. But it's built into Mormonism to embrace family and to embrace women's roles as mothers. It's not like in the 19th century they didn't embrace their motherhood. It's it's just that they weren't necessarily limited to just that sphere. Gotcha. You know, one thing that comes to mind, um, it was also during this time that you had um, figures like David O. McKay, um, under whose stewardship missionary work, um, started to explode, and that's also obviously when, uh, in the wake of his presidency, that uh, the correlation um, movement happened. Mm-hmm. And so, in the midst of that, you know, I see uh, Mormonism trying to be appealing to the 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 population outside of Utah, and I wonder if that um, had any any role in that as well. Well, yes. I mean, I I like to be fair about correlation. I recognize that, um, you know, historically and from a feminist perspective, a lot of people have a problem with correlation and and that it basically took autonomy away from the Relief Society, gave it to the priesthood, made women accountable to priesthood authority for everything they did, um, ended the Relief Society magazine, all of those what you might consider negative changes that came because of correlation. But on the other hand, look at what it did for the international church, that you now have these correlated magazines, if you want to use that example, or curriculum that is applicable across the board, whether you live in Ghana or Brazil or Korea or the United States, you're going to get a similar message and that there is a continuity across the board among members all over the globe imagine how liberating that would have been for members of the church in all of these countries that were kind of going on their own up to that point and sometimes kind of flying by the seat of their pants as to what was expected of them and what the lessons should be and um, conflicting messages and doctrine and all those things gotcha so so right now in in sort of our <laughs> in our grand historic perspective I see us going into the 1960s and 1970s and so what um what sort of uh, and obviously the I'm sure I'm sure we could talk about um first and second wave uh first and second wave feminism and how that affects everything but um let's let's talk about that and then move into the end of the 20th century and to where we are today well, the biggest thing that happened was that the rest of America experienced a women's rights movement um, in the 1960s, along with the other cultural identity movements of, you know, civil rights and Native American rights and, of course, feminism of the 1960s. And so here you have this interesting moment where, you know, a, two roads diverged in a wood kind of thing. And so the the church has to either push against that or go with it. And for the 1960s and 70s, the church chose to push against it. And that's where you get really the emergence of a um, a kind of a, a more combative or 
disappointed Mormon feminist identity because of the battle over the Equal Rights Amendment and um, some of the pushback to uh, reaffirming that women's places in the home. I mean, you have as late as the 1980s, President Benson giving his famous talk to the women, to the mothers of the church, saying, your place is in the home, and if you are outside of the home, it's probably for selfish reasons. It's um, it's it's pretty clear message that reifies the the that whole post-war emphasis on domesticity, whereas the rest of the nation had kind of moved on from that narrative. And so that's where you see the emergence of this kind of this most recent, I'd say, forty-ish, thirty-five-ish year old. Mormon feminist identity comes out of that divergence that occurred in the 1960s and the and the 1970s. So whereas feminism in the 19th century, Mormon women that were feminists because they were embracing suffrage, equal education for women, all of those things in the 19th century, that kind of feminism very much gelled with the church. It very much blended with the church. It was not hostile or antagonistic to instead it, it, it very much went in line with what the church was about in the 19th century. Whereas 20th century feminism to, was was different than what the church's overall message was. And so two different kinds of feminism and the church responded in two different ways. Um, where would you like me to go from there? So the Equal Rights Amendment battle of course pitted women who actually believed in things like female ordination and ending some of these traditional practices that they considered sexist in the church, etc. And then because you had the excommunication of a very high-profile Mormon feminist, that, um, that in itself was seen as kind of a, you know, let's Let's stop here. We're not going to go any farther. And who was that that was excommunicated? Um, um, Sonia Johnson, of course, over the um, Equal Rights Amendment. Um, but then, of course, in the early 90s, you're going to have the excommunication of uh, of another handful of high-profile feminists as well. So between 1980, the late 70s and early 80s, when you're in the middle of the Equal Rights Amendment battle, um, and then 1992, when you have the in 1993, excuse me, when you have the excommunication of these high-profile feminists in the church who are um, talking about some of these issues very publicly, that time period was um, very fraught with tension. And who are some of those uh, feminists you're referring to for our listeners who aren't familiar? Well, of of course, um, Lavina Fielding Anderson and Margaret Toscano being the two most um, kind of high-profile Mm-hmm. of them uh, Maxine Hanks whose mm-hmm. whose book um, Women in Authority and including then the essays in Women in Authority I read as a graduate student and um, was one of those moments where I literally had to look, kind of look inside and evaluate where am I in all of this where am I as, as far as women's place in the church it's a it's a very compelling read um <sighs> Anyway, I'm I'm not I'm kind of rambling now. So if you want to help me direct so, back to where I'm where I'm going of how how we've come around today, where we are today, I guess. So how how has so, you know, my impression, um, going back to sort of the feminist movements in the in the 60s and 70s, um, 
the church sort of adopts almost a siege mentality to combat that. And, yeah. And then, but it seems like it, it's reacted a little bit differently um, in subsequent movements since then. Is that is that correct? Am I uh, is that a correct assumption, or am I totally totally off there? Yes, the the church responded very much with full guns blazing against the equal rights movement. There's no question about that. And again, justify it as far as the church won't get involved in politics unless it's a so-called moral issue. Mm-hmm. Well, many Mormon feminists said, well, it's not just a moral issue; it's also a legal issue. There's other things involved here. Um, but I would compare the church's involvement in the equal rights against the equal rights amendment, similar to how it's taken on some of the um, gay marriage um, propositions in, in on state levels and those kinds of things. So I, I see some similar action. Interesting. Second wave feminism that came out of the 1960s and 70s, although at its heart, at its core, wasn't anti-marriage and anti-family and anti-children or anti-maternity, I should say, the radical arm of the second wave amendment or second wave feminism was. There was very much a rhetoric that, you know, it's like it's like with any movement, the radicals are going to take over the message. Right. And so with second wave feminism, the association even to this day, if you call yourself a feminist, the automatic association, the conclusion that people reach is, oh, you must hate men and you must be anti-marriage and anti-family, meaning you don't want to have children, etc. And so coming, I want to be fair to this whole um, conflict that occurred in the 1970s. For many in the church, you know, we're we're all prone to a little bit of fear-mongering. We're prone to believing the worst possible extreme that can happen. And so coming out of second wave feminism where the very vocal second wave feminists were saying things like, you know, get rid of men, get rid of traditional marriage because it's a form of sexual slavery, etc. You can see where the church was definitely putting up its its walls and saying, no, this is this is where we can't go anymore. We can't we can't go that direction. So for Mormon women, the fact that the church still validated and still does. I mean, let's be let's be presentist about this. The fact that the church still validates their motherhood, um, their stay-at-home motherhood, as something that is absolutely worthwhile, that is valued um, to many Mormon women, um, many that I know personally, that is the most validating thing to them. They didn't want to be seen as making a secondary choice, making an inferior choice, which is how second wave feminism sometimes made them feel, as though they had made an inferior choice to be a mother and to be a stay-at-home mother. So I want to put that, I want to be fair on that, is that, um, is there anything you'd like to clarify <laughs> of that, what I just said? I, no, no, that that makes perfect sense. So so in in response to that, you know, how did we, you know, how did how did things sort of wrap up the end of the 20th century and where are we at today in terms of um you know, the way LDS right. culture views mm-hmm. uh gender roles. Well, I think that where we've come is that and I I want to be completely honest here. There's there's many women in the church that in fairness would say 
I have never felt like a second-class citizen. I have always felt validated, valued, loved, um, completely equal. And then there are those, of course, who have not felt that way, who feel as though the institution of the church is inherently, because it is a patriarchy, because men do hold the power in the church, and that women's roles are very are, are, are prescribed so carefully that it is a sexist institution that they have decided to leave altogether. Um, and I'm not judging either side. I, for one, am, I do not judge women for um, their own feelings of where they have found their faith or lost their faith. But for me, um, I see myself in kind of a middle ground, if that makes sense, a, a place in which I recognize that certain cultural aspects of the church are not completely equal. And yet, at the same time, um, there's so much at the core of what I believe that is absolutely liberating as far as my access to a direct communication with God, um, my claim on the atonement of Jesus Christ, and my feelings about my eternal identity, both as a pre-mortal existence and where I, what I can become in the next, in the next life, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, there are cultural aspects of of our lived religion that I I think sometimes need some adjusting and need some um, re-looking at. And I'm not necessarily one of these that's out demanding or picketing, but I try to at least use kind of historical context or to use a little bit of, of balance to try and make people see, you know, this particular program might not be seen as completely equal. Or this particular program for young men might send the message that young men are more validated than young women are or or whatever. Um, or for me, a lot of times what uh, my problems have to do with the language that we use toward women. And I can elaborate a little bit about on that. If Yeah, please do. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I again, I, I like the contradictions. I like to discuss contradictions. And so I see sometimes that we struggle between referring to women on a kind of pedestal as, you know, we honor women, we revere women, we value women, we love you so much, um, over and over in a kind of attempt to convince women we really do love you, but in a kind of pedestal way. Mm-hmm. This is a, an actual attempt to use language of equality, that men and women can do this, men and women can do this. Uh, I tend to get a little nervous when we start talking about women being more righteous than men, men women being more angelic, um, prone to more natural tendencies of righteousness. And sometimes we do that a little bit in the church. We we do a little bit of the, well, women are much more righteous than men. Um, and so when it comes down to the whole issue of whether women have the priesthood or not, there are, like myself, I'm not out demanding that women have the priesthood. I'm not advocating for that. What I am advocating for is that we change how we talk about why women don't have the priesthood. So for me, I'd like to see us depart a little bit from these 19th century Victorian notions of women being more pure, more righteous, more angelic. And so for that reason, they don't need to have the priesthood. Um, I would rather just have, you know, we don't know why women don't have the priesthood right now. 
Right. That's, you know, I'd rather just have a simple, I don't, I don't need the, well, women are mothers and men have the priesthood. That, that kind of dualism doesn't work for me because actually men are fathers and women are mothers. Um, and Sherry Dew dealt a little bit with this in her talk about uh, womanhood, that men have the priesthood and women have leadership roles that are born out of their their position as righteous women in the church. And I can, you know, I, I can see that. I can see that because it does, definitely goes in line with kind of what our 19th century roles were in in many ways. So um, there are, you know, there are things about, and, and there's a whole long list that, of course, Mormon feminists would say, well, we want this and we want this and we want this. And I, I recognize and I, I hear those, I hear those lists and some of them I would agree with completely. And some I would say, just be patient. And some I would say, um, you know, let's not push the bucket too far. Um, right. But I do see, so my middle ground is that I would like to see an expansive role of where we ta- how we talk about women in the church. Um, the pedestal, you know, the pedestal is an interesting thing. I honestly believe that in some situations, in some cultures, the pedestal is empowering to women who have been abused and mistreated and treated as nothing. And definitely we're seeing that as the church enters into some developing countries where these very patriarchal, abusively patriarchal situations um, and and men and women are lifted out of those traditions of their fathers if you want to call it call it that of you know um bride price um you know selling of of women of um child marriages all of those things Mm -hmm. um rape all those things that are accepted in some cultures you know it's definitely a progress to say well we revere women we love women we value women as something special and set apart that's to me the pedestal is can be empowering to some women but to other women the pedestal is not useful at all the pedestal is actually something that's a little bit backward um you know looking at it from a kind of benevolent patriarchy approach why is it what's backwards about it well, I think it just it reminds you of how you're not really equal. If you have to be reminded how equal you are all the time, then maybe there there is a, maybe a disconnect there. Um, yeah, I yeah, I've I've always um, been sort of intrigued by that whole dynamic because, and I remember for for years I've always joked with my wife how every time. Um, she goes to the general relief society meeting. She's told how wonderful she is and how great they are. And, you know, we love the women of the church. You're so wonderful. And then a couple of weeks later, I go to priesthood meeting and I'm told how awful I am and how I need to repent and I need to honor my priesthood. And so there, it is interesting that there is uh, sort of that, uh, um, that dichotomy there. Right. <laughs> and you definitely see that. And I don't, I don't know that people would think of it that way when you're hearing a priesthood leader get up and give a talk about how wonderful women are. He's probably thinking, wow, I'm being really empowering right now. Um, but in a way, the pedestal is depowering because it limits men and women as well. It, it, just, it, it perpetuates the stereotype that women are 
all righteous and good and nurturing and angelic, and men are debased evil creatures. But that's not the doctrine of Christ. And that's one of the empowering things. Um, You know, we teach, we believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. I like to change that to, I believe that men and women will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam and Eve's transgression. Because I believe that I'm just as prone to sin and failure and failings as anybody else. And I deserve the atonement just as much as anybody else. I I deserve the saving grace of Christ just as much as a man does, as my husband does, or as another woman. And so if you try to tell women too much how wonderful, good, angelic, perfect you are... (laughs) It kind of is, uh, to me, it doesn't, it's not backed up by doctrine, the doctrines of the atonement. Mm. Um, And it's, I I look at myself and my husband and, you know, there's so many things, our failures and things that we're working through together. And he has so many qualities that I almost consider by, by society's expectations, almost feminine. He's much more patient <laughs> he is much more he he wants to give people the benefit of the doubt i'm much more quick to judge and to you know enact my the wrath of god on somebody that i feel has wronged me um very masculine qualities and so i i sometimes am a little bit concerned with just how much we use gender essentialism and i i see that improving a little bit but i just recently attended something where i heard somebody in a high position of authority say those exact things well we love women because you're so good and you're you know you you're so righteous and i'm just like oh (laughs) no i'm not always good i'm not always righteous i'm a human being who is flawed and prone to sin and i love that the atonement applies to me so because what i hear you saying is almost that um that sort of protectionist rhetoric can sometimes come across as patronizing and, and even condescending, especially when it's couched in sort of this self-deprecation of of of, uh, of the males and the priesthood and and so on and so forth. Um, and you know, and I again, I, I love to see the contradictions and I love to see the balance in things. I understand protectionism. This is very much. Um, you know, when you look at legislation over the course of American history that's directed at or about women, it's often driven by a protectionist motive. In other words, women, and especially women and children, are in a class set apart that deserve extra protection. We have battled this dilemma in legislation, American legislation, over over a century and a half of to what extent do you legislate a protectionist approach for women or do you legislate absolute equality for women? Um, and that's a that's a tricky that's a tricky thing that we haven't figured out yet. That's why women aren't required to sign up for the draft. That's why um, some states are more likely to give custody of children to mothers. That's that's why one of the reasons that the church did not um, support the Equal Rights Amendment is that it honestly, and I do believe the church honestly believed that the Equal Rights Amendment would remove protectionist legislation for women in the case of domestic violence or rape or or those kinds of things. So where, 
you know, that's a, that's a difficult thing that we haven't really figured out. We want to protect women and children because we see them as vulnerable. Um, but then we use protectionist rhetoric as a way of claiming equality. And it doesn't always, it doesn't always match. Hmm. So that's the thing is protectionist legislation would actually go a long way in countries where it's still legal to rape your wife, it's still legal to murder a, a woman who has had a child out of wedlock, then protectionist legislation you can almost see would be a value in some of these in some of these societies. But where we are in America today is is wanting to jettison some of that outdated kind of chivalry, if that makes sense. So um, Gotcha. So here's a Here's a question that I've sort of been that's sort of been uh, coming into my head as we've been talking. Um, a lot of the, um, I guess, opposition that uh, that you see, or sort of conflict between sort of Mormon feminists and um, perhaps more mainstream LDS women, mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of that uh, conflict comes from a expectation of conformity because the uh, pronouncements and proclamations that that we receive about gender roles are coming from a prophetic source Mm -hmm. and so i think that can be sort of um, uh, difficult for lds women to to question because we are expected to Mm -hmm. conform to what um, these leaders say because they have uh, that special channel to revelation, and these mm-hmm. are, you know, these gender roles are viewed as things that are necessary for us and necessary for us to combat the world and to here to adhere to the, you know, the the values that God wants us to have. And so, my question, given that as as sort of a backdrop, how do you reconcile that with with sort of um, you know, the feminist uh, inclinations that you and other LDS women have that are sort of in conflict with that. That's a, that's a challenge. That's a challenge because, you know, when you have, uh, there's, there's kind of, first of all, I'm going to say there's a spectrum of Mormon feminism. Um, definitely, there's, like I said before, there's women that are going to say, I've never felt anything less than equal in the church. I don't know where these women are coming from. And then you're going to have on the other end of that spectrum women that leave entirely and say, "What a sexist institution! I can't even I can't even be in it anymore." And so when you say Mormon feminist, that's it's kind of like, "Who are you talking about?" But in general, those that want to be believing, good, practicing members of the church are going to feel some reluctance of speaking out. Because the message is, if you suggest that something needs to be changed, even if it's something minor, then somehow you're not faithful, somehow you're not supporting the priesthood, somehow you're speaking out against the Lord's anointed, that kind of thing, that even um, translates into your worthiness to attend the temple, if you're going to look at it um, very carefully. Right. Um, I can remember, I have said for years, men and women need to serve missions at the same age. The, married, the, the mission age for women needs to be dropped to 19. And 
I've said this for years, and yet sometimes when I've said it to people, I've gotten the most horrified looks on my on their faces of <laughs> how how dare you suggest something that's different than what we've been doing because somehow you are somehow you are challenging you're steadying the arc you're steadying the arc you're steadying <laughs> the arc and so it's interesting when this recent change happened i felt i felt this immense sense of validation like wow i wasn't steady <laughs> well or at least maybe i was feeling an inclination of something that was going to happen in the long run but um I don't know. I don't know where I want to go with that. But it's interesting that something, even a very small change, that might expand the roles of women in the church, people are very uncomfortable with, if they're coming at it from a, the point of view of everything in the church is perfect as it is. It's all divinely inspired. Nothing needs to change. And so, if you suggest even the hint of a small change that's really not even doctrinal, it's just cultural or it's just a policy or a program, then somehow, like like I said, somehow you are challenging prophetic authority so it can be it can be a tricky issue. I think that this is still kind of the very last frontier you know i mean look at the look at the comparison to blacks receiving the priesthood you know prior to that people that wanted blacks to have the priesthood if they spoke up about it were accused of the same things how dare you you're challenging prophetic authority and even using folkloric and racist doctrines to defend the 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 practice mm -hmm. so then when it changes and then you have general authority saying look everything we've taught up to this point about race in the church we're we're not Sell it. We're not buying that anymore. We're not using that anymore. But you still have members of the church that continue to embrace some of these folklores even today, as we've seen recently with some of that that conflict. Right. Um, but now at least we can talk about it. Now, I mean, now thirty years after the fact, you get a sense that we can at least kind of address some of the that kind of historical climax to blacks receiving the priesthood and we can talk about it in an open and honest way in many ways we're not yet there regarding women in the church as far as separating out what is doctrine versus what is kind of cultural practice and so um, if people if you want to suggest some kind of a maybe an adjustment needs to make be made or that things aren't as equal as they should be you're people get, get very same, yeah you're going to get that same reaction yeah, same defensiveness yeah same defensiveness that somehow you um, my biggest frustration is when because i have friends on both sides of this i have very good friends who are very vocal mormon feminists and i have friends who are and relatives who are very much um feel validated have never felt unequal my thing is that all women's voices need to be validated. If and and I I very I get uncomfortable when I hear either somebody who's very content saying to the feminists, "Oh, how dare they talk that way? That's not what the church is. That's not what the church teaches. How dare they feel that way?" That makes me uncomfortable because that's that person's experience, and if that's their experience, that we need to be more Christian and validate that experience. But on the same side, when I hear very vocal Mormon feminists saying, oh, those those women who buy into the patriarchy and who are, you know, they can't think for themselves, that also makes me uncomfortable as well. So I'm uncomfortable by both extremes. 
I think that women, um, I think we just need to be more accepting of each other's experiences and our and our own individual voices. And if somebody comes to you and says, I really struggle with the place of women in the church, I'm having a crisis of faith, that our reaction shouldn't be, oh, how dare you, you're not praying enough, or how dare you, you're not you're not being faithful enough. Instead, our reaction should be, I'm so sorry you feel that way. Do you want to talk about it? Can I, can I help? In, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's where we should, and we're not quite there yet either. Instead, we're still very much at odds with each other um, because there is, there is examples of honest pain. Um, I have felt honest pain over the roles of women in the church. I have felt it. I know it. But I have also felt honest validation and joy. Um, including what happened last Saturday filled me with such immense joy because it's something that I've wanted and desired for years. And I felt like, A, either somebody was listening to those Mm. of us who have wanted it, or B, um, that, that God is directing where women should, where women's, expansive roles and participation in the sh- in the church should be and so we need to be validating each other's experiences whether they be experiences of joy or of pain and helping to work through those i just i want our i want our church especially the women of the church to be diverse i don't buy into the notion that there is just one type of mormon woman i know thousands of different types of Mormon women. And so the fact that we're seen as a stereotype or that we're seen as this kind of monolithic creature, um, instead we need to be seen as the very diversity that we are because that's the diversity that I want us to be. But the fact that we're united in our faith in Christ, that we're united in our faith that we are can claim the atonement regardless of what our experience is or our pain is. So that's, that's, that's very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and, uh, you know, the hour is drawing late, but before mm-hmm. we wrap up the sort of the two questions that I wanted to ask that sort of piggyback off of what you just talked about, uh, our first, um, given that probably, I think it's safe to say that, um, most women who struggle and have a crisis of faith in modern Mormonism, very often that is catalyzed by sort of the dissatisfaction and perceived inequality that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so my, my first question is, if you were to um, you know, talk to somebody who's, who's having those feelings and experience, experiencing those sort of doubts and questions, um, how do you... Um, how do you help people? How do you help women in that situation reconcile and 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 work through that and and still maintain faith? Yeah. And so that's question number one. And then question number two is, given um, sort of the tension and uh, conflict that that you were just talking about, how what is the best way for women who are concerned about these issues and who do and who want? And not just women, but but men also who want to affect change and sort of um, help the church move forward. What is the best way to do that? So, sorry, that's a compound question. So I hope you can. No, that's okay. (laughs) 
Oh, I'm writing those, those down as you. <laughs> <laughs> so question one, how do you reconcile? Okay. And question two, how do we move forward? You know, the reconciliation process is going to be individual for each person. And my first answer is to love whomever, is first to love. For women who are maybe on the teetering edge of wanting to leave but aren't sure, my first instinct is to say, please stay for me because I need you, I want you, um, I want your diversity, I want your voice. Um, for those who just can't reconcile anymore and they have to leave, my answer is I love you anyway. I, I love your voice. I need you. I, do, do you see what I'm saying? I, I need them either way. And it's not just about me, but I, I hope that they would feel that God loves them either way. Um, as far as the reconciliation, if somebody is honestly looking for hope and help, first is to look to women who are diverse, who are not necessarily you know, living a life of, of the kind of picture-perfect conformity, but maybe look to women who have struggled or look to women who have worked through some of these challenges on their own or are trying to um, look to church history because, ironically, in this case, um, actually looking back to our 19th century past can be so empowering if you're looking for answers of what God's expectations for women are, I go and read some 19th century diaries. That always helps me to feel a sense of complete validation and empowerment as I, I read about these women exercising their spiritual gifts, of talking about their very powerful testimonies of the Restoration. Uh, I just love it. So, and I don't, I, my other thing is on that question is don't ever dismiss somebody's honest concerns and what they're going through don't ever tell somebody oh you must not be praying hard enough you or that's not that experience isn't mine so your experience is less valid than mine those can those kinds of reactions can almost be more damaging than what brought that person to a crisis of faith to begin with and that's where we need to be. We need to be as as a religion of loving and helping people to work through. You know, we're so good at helping people to work through word of wisdom problems or law of chastity problems. But we're not as good at sometimes at helping people to work through their intellectual problems or their crisis of faith problems. And that's where we need yeah. to work on our judgment. So that's question number one. <laughs> Um, how was that? Anything that was, you want, want me to perfect. add to that? No, thank you very much. And then, um, and then, question number this, two was, you know, given the given the tension that we that we talked about, how can uh, both men and women who um, who want to um, sort of uh, advocate uh, progressive change uh, when it comes to gender roles? What is the most uh, <laughs> effective way to do that? Wow, uh, that's really open-ended. I don't know if I, um, you know, there's definitely the take that people want to make lists and put them on the internet and say, I demand this and this and this and this. And, and like I said, I respect those women because that that motion comes from a place of passion and sometimes very deep pain. 
and they they need to make that kind of a statement. Um, and then there's the other, other extreme where you just sit and endure it. And you hear a church leader say something sexist or something happens and you just take it. You don't want to do that either. You don't want to be a wilting flower. But you, I, I also get concerned with the whole standing up and, you know, marching, protesting kind of approach because that tends to put people at odds. And not just leaders, but it would put other people at odds. Um, so my take is to, when you feel as though a sense of injustice has occurred, to approach somebody um, and if you feel like that person is still not sympathetic to you, to approach somebody else and approach people in, in person and individually until you can find somebody that's willing to help you work through that, whether it be a church leader. And what if you have a church leader that's completely non-sympathetic to what you're going through? That's, that's a dilemma because the, the culture is you sustain your leaders as, you know, basically speaking for God. And so if your church leader doesn't validate whatever your concern is, then you might feel worse than you did going in to begin with. So um, my thing would be to share positive stories, would be to um, work through gentle gentle reform, gentle reminders. Um, if I could give a heads up to um, Nyland McBain's Mormon, Woman Pro- Mormon Women Project is... Um, working on a kind of subset of the Mormon Women Project where um, she and I will be hopefully collecting experiences by members of the church, both men and women, where they talk about how they have actively included women and teenage girls better in more affirming ways and how they've adjusted language or adjusted lessons to empower women. So my first thing is to talk to people. Don't be afraid to talk to people. Don't be, don't be in silence because that reaffirms that whole stereotype that we live in this autocratic church that just tells us what to do and we have no recourse to express our concerns. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the other thing, and, and I recognize that that can be difficult because I have felt that same inclination where I don't want to say anything because I don't want to rock the boat I don't want to make waves. I don't want to, um, you know, get myself into trouble. But as I'm saying it, I, I I feel like I sometimes need to actually do it and 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 uh, do what I'm preaching. And then the other thing is to share positive stories. Look back at where you have experienced excellent gender respect and gender equality in the church. And as hard as it may be for some. We all have at least one story of one priesthood leader, of one bishop who validated us completely. Um, and those are, some, those are some stories that I look back on. I was a Young Relief Society president in Nebraska. Um, the first, they created a singles ward um, for the University of Nebraska. I was the first Relief Society president. I was old by standards. You know, I was 26, 27 years old, by, and I had all these 18 Ancient. <laughs> By, by young single adult standards, and I had this bishop, and he was in his late 60s. He was getting close to retirement from the university from a little town in southern Utah, and he and I just clicked like like peas and carrots. We were, um, we were just best buds, and he confided in me, and I confided in him, and he invited me specifically to attend 
PEC. And I said, well, I thought Relief Society presidents technically weren't supposed to, quote unquote, they're not supposed to attend that. He said, but I want you there. I don't care what supposed to is. I want you there. Um, and this man, you know, he counseled with me. He took my advice. He, we made decisions together on callings. On we we talked in confidence about people in the ward that we had concerns about. And I, I mean, what an experience to have at age 27 for a young Relief Society president. And that has stayed with me my whole for. Uh, up till now and I approached him one day I said I said Bishop I said how is it that you have treated me this way how is it that you have included me this way and he said he said it's because I've been a bishop and he said I used to be this good old boy from Utah this good old boy you know raised in that generation but being a bishop taught me what women are and what they can be and I, I mean, what a moment, what an epiphany for me to have if he's listening to this and he's, you know, he's, he might not be listening to this, but I'm sure some people who are, who know who he is are listening to this and they know what I'm talking about. But those kinds of moments, we have to look back on those moments and say, wow, this is what the gospel is really about. When you strip away all of these old outdated notions of what women should be and what men should be, that we do have this unity of faith, men and women together, that can be, that can happen if individuals would put it into practice. Um, and I'm, I'm glad for, I'm glad for those experiences. I had another experience after moving here to Rexburg where I heard a talk by somebody that was a high leader of the church that so upset me, so disturbed me. Um, I, I was just absolutely distraught over, I mean, very blatant sexist language in this talk, very blatant. And I went to my stake president. And instead of dismissing me and saying, how dare you think this way of such and such of, of your priesthood authority, he said, I understand where you're coming from. It was probably not right for him to talk that way, et cetera. I mean, he validated how I felt, and we counseled together about it. Andrea, he said, most men don't think this way. Just look at it from his cultural perspective, et cetera, et cetera. But I felt so validated when I came out of that experience. Like, not everybody thinks that way. Not everybody is that way. We have to share those kinds of positive experiences in our our shared ministry and our shared um, roles as men and women both trying to come unto Christ, that no one is the master or the servant, that we're all kind of in this together. And if we have more of those kinds of validating experiences, then that will help those that are not feeling validated or have felt pain over the roles of women in the church to start feeling better and things will things will improve and i know for many mormon feminists the fact that this age change for sister missionaries almost did feel like that like wow somebody has been listening to us or somebody has been thinking about one of the issues that we've been concerned about and what an empowering thing to have the top leadership of the church member of the quorum of the 12 saying i'm absolutely giddy over this they remind us that we are that either someone is listening um that they are honestly concerned with um you know how to expand the 
the roles and the contributions of women in the church that i mean the, that change in itself to me was so empowering and i know some people have some difficulties with it because they see well you know why why did you lower the men's age to 18 but i see that as a moot point really um to me that's a minor detail essentially young men and young women are going to be serving at the same age for all intent and purposes right. um but but still it just the way that elder holland for example reacted to it in the press conference by saying how giddy he was that he was giddy over this change i thought wow you know this these are not you know these are not a bunch of old crotchety men sitting up in an office rubbing their fingers together going how can we keep women in their place <laughs> you know <Right. laughs> um, I, I don't i don't see it i see that they're trying their best in in many ways to respond to these external forces being placed on women and sometimes they respond with pedestal talk we value you we worship you we revere you kind of talk and sometimes they respond with we recognize your pain and here's another solution you know so we have you know we have men and women trying to work through some of these institutional these institutional separations as best they can so are there things that we can still do yes i think that there are um but i'm going to you know i i feel so i feel so emboldened by what happened this past weekend i feel so hopeful that i want to wait and see what comes of it i want to wait and see you know maybe within my lifetime or my daughter's lifetime what what other kinds of of uh wonderful things come of it but um i just i want our church and our people to be the best that we can be and i think we can well, thank you for sharing that, Andrea. And I really, you know, I, I I detect and I sense a lot of hope in what you're saying there. And I think that's um, an important mentality to keep in all this is uh, is that there is hope and that there are still uh, many great and wonderful things to come. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think uh, I think that's a good place to stop. What do you think? Um, sure. That uh, if unless there's something you want me to elaborate on more, I feel like I've done so much talking. But well, um, that's kind of the point. That's what we want. We want to hear from you. I'm I'm just a bonehead. Nobody wants to hear me talk. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time, Andrea, to uh, to talk to us and share uh, your wisdom and expertise uh, with, with with me. It's been a really eye-opening experience for me talking to you, hearing these things, and I know it has been for our listeners. Um, we are going to put uh, several links up on our website. Um, we will link to some of the articles that uh, Andrea has written. Um, we are doing another episode in conjunction with Nyland McBain, and uh, um, Sarah Colette uh, is interviewing her and talking about the Mormons Women Mormon Women's Project that Andrea referenced to earlier. And so, and then uh, we encourage uh, our listeners to participate and comment on the blog. And I'm sure Andrea will stop in and, and perhaps uh, engage in a dialogue with some of our listeners, answer some questions. And um, I think that's a, that's a great place to end. Um, any, any other closing remarks you want to leave us with, Andrea? Um, no, I think I, I hope I ended it on a note that I that I want to and that um, the listeners feel uh, feel uplifted by. I'm, I'm sure they will. I know I have and I, I really appreciate it. 
Uh, so thank you once again for joining us, Andrea. And this has been a Thoughtful Faith Podcast. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you, see you